This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 8. We're looking tonight at Jeremiah chapter 8 verses 18 through chapter 9 verse 26. not going to read the passage in its entirety until we actually work our way through it, but I do want to read the first few verses just to get us started. Um, Chapter 8, verse 18. Jeremiah says, My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. Behold, the cry of the daughter of my people from the length and breadth of the land. Is not the Lord in Zion? Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn, and dismay has taken hold on me. Let's pray. Father, we pray that this evening you would open our eyes, our hearts, our minds to this passage of your word. Father, we pray that we would feel both the burden Jeremiah felt, but also, Father, the uh, the, the burden lifted by your grace. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If the old torch song, Cry Me a River, was included in the Trinity hymnal, we would probably have sung it tonight in connection with this passage before us in Jeremiah. There's a good reason Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet, and he certainly establishes his credentials in that regard in the passage before us. But that's just because Jeremiah was not a detached disinterested bearer of bad news. Jeremiah felt deeply the weight of what he had to say. He also recognized that he himself was a recipient of the message that he delivered, that he himself would suffer along with his people the fulfillment of those judgments that God had threatened because of the people's sin and disobedience. His heart is distraught, and that comes through in this passage. It's in some ways not an easy passage. For one thing, it's sometimes hard to know who it is who's speaking, because many of the passages, especially where mourning or weeping is involved, reflect both Jeremiah's complaint and the Lord's answer to him. For that complaint, the Lord's response to him and some of the things that he says. And it's confused because it's an expression of painful emotion. And as you may know from your own experience, when you are upset about something, you can be confused. You may feel one way, quickly feel another way, may think one thing, quickly feel another thing. 
Well, Phil Riken in his sermons on Jeremiah points out some of the confusion that we find even in, in Jeremiah himself, where in verse 18, uh, he speaks of uh, his sorrow, my joy is gone, grief is upon me, my heart is sick within me. Uh, he can then he can also speak of of questioning whether God is even present at all. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? In some places he speaks of God and his, as his comfort. Here he he questions whether God is there at all. And as far as the people are concerned, uh, he identifies with them in verse twenty one. The wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I share that wound. I share their affliction, their distress. And then he can turn around and distance himself from the people. Verse uh, Chapter 9, verse 2. Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place, that I might leave my people, go away from them. Well, which is it? Well, it's all of these, because Jeremiah's heart is all over the place. And his feelings are all over the place. Well, is it wrong for him to behave and think the way he did? Uh, no, not really, because he recognized his message, he recognized the sinfulness of the people, and he recognized the justice of God, and he was distraught, and we would say entirely right to be in anguish over the condition of the people. In fact, we could draw from that this lesson, that it is entirely appropriate that we mourn over the sinfulness, over the waywardness of God's people and of his chastening of them. Well, this illustrates that. It really goes through three phases, uh, three parts to it. One is this expression of mourning that we find. Uh, and another section is just almost, it's, in fact, it's written in prose. It's just an explanation. But then also the way out. Uh, Jeremiah asks the question, is there balm in Gilead? And the answer is yes, although maybe not quite in the way he was looking for it. Well, first of all, the mourning, the, the distress. We've already looked at a little bit of that, but he begins in verse 18 with this expression of being sick at heart. And you know the feeling, that knot in your stomach, that sense of overwhelming grief, the delivery of bad news. Grief is upon me, has come upon me. Um, the, the, the sinfulness of the people, the anguish of the people. And either Jeremiah is, at this point, experiencing the chastening, the enemy at the gate, the destruction of the city, or he is looking at it prophetically as if it were happening, anticipating it's happening. And he asks this question, is the Lord not in Zion? Is our king not in her? Has God forsaken us? Has he abandoned us? And then you have a response, I think, is the Lord's answer. The end of verse 19. Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign idols? In a sense, there's almost a note of anguish from God. Why have they been so rebellious? Why have they been so idolatrous? And then back to the people. The harvest is past. The summer is ended. And we are not saved. The harvest, of course, was critical. Generally, period from April through, uh, through August into September. And there was the grain harvest, and uh, that would come in. There were other things that would be harvested, figs and whatnot. And if the grain harvest failed, they would hope for other harvests. But if the harvest failed, if, as it says here, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and the crop has entirely failed, they are in a bad way. 
And that's exactly the statement here. The harvest has passed, the summer has ended, and we are not saved. Uh, I have a sermon in a book uh, by a preacher of old, actually just on that one text, taking that, and after a period of revival in this country, uh, the, the point of the sermon was, has, has, has the harvest passed, has the summer of God's grace and God's mercy ended, and you still are not saved? You know, in this time of opportunity, this day of salvation, do you still find yourself unsaved in the, the dire situation that, that could be? Verse 21, for the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn. Dismay has taken hold on me. He feels the anguish of his people. He feels anguish for his people, but he also feels the anguish of his people. And then that question in verse 22, is there no balm in Gilead? Gilead was known for its uh, balsams, for its healing. In fact, uh, when Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, uh, the caravan traveling along to Egypt was carrying balm from Gilead. If you look, uh, that's one of the things that's listed there, even that early on. Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? And more tears. Oh, that my head were waters, my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Life is, is, is over, except the, the weeping, just day and night, endless sorrow, endless grief. And at this point, Jeremiah just wants to bail. This could be his, his, his Walden Pond kind of moment, you know, just to escape, just to get away, to go off. And I had a, had a, in the desert, a traveler's lodging place that I might leave my people and go away from them, for they're all adulterers, a company of treacherous men. Well, he, he feels for them, he hurts with them, and he turns around and says, they're all vile, they're all sinners. They've all just brought this, and God's abandoned them, and I want to abandon them too, abandon them also. And the Lord says, they bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land. The people who've been given the law, people who've been given the, uh, the, the Ten Commandments, the law, the sacrifices, all of this, the truth of God, and yet that's been abandoned. That's, that's gone. It's falsehood, lies that have grown strong in the land. They proceed from evil to evil. They do not know me, declares the Lord. In fact, they're harmful to each other. Verse 4, let everyone beware his neighbor. Put no trust in any brother. Every brother is a deceiver. Literally, is a Jacob. You know, Jacob's name means deceiver. Every, every brother is a Jacob. Imagine being Esau, having Jacob for a brother. Well, everybody has Jacob, has a deceiver for a brother. You don't know what he's going to do to you next. Every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor. No one speaks the truth. They've taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves, committing iniquity. They they exhaust themselves, just sinning, heaping oppression upon oppression, deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. And again, this back and forth, Jeremiah's anguish, but the Lord's response. Look at these people. Look at what they're like. They're full of Deceit, they're full of oppression. They are the opposite of what God redeemed them and called them and trained them to be. They're, they're simply wrong. They've gone bad. And seven, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and test them. What else can I do because of my people? The Lord feels for Jeremiah. 
But he also reasons with him here. He has no option. He can't let this go on. He can't just let this continue. What else can I do because of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow, speaks deceitfully. With his mouth, each speaks peace to his neighbor, but in his heart he plans an ambush for him. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? Jeremiah says, I will take up weeping and wailing for the mountains and a lamentation for the pastures of the wilderness because they are laid waste so that no one passes through and the lowing of cattle is not heard. Both the birds of the air, the beasts have fled and are gone. It's just quiet. Nothing's as it should be. You ever notice that or experience that when it's when it's really quiet? You don't even hear birds chirping. You don't hear anything singing or any other noises, and it's just very quiet. You know, that's the kind of thing he's talking about here. They fled. They're gone. And the Lord responds, I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a lair of jackals. I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. So a passage of mourning. The Lord interjecting his explanations there. Uh, but there's also more mourning to follow, and this is a little different. What we've seen is Jeremiah's. But what follows here is professional mourners lamenting death in the city. This is verse 17. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider and call for the mourning women to come. Send for the skillful women to come. Well, in that day, and even in places today, uh, if you were having a funeral, you would hire professional mourners to, to make lamentation. That's, of course, not that you didn't feel the loss. But if you're going to do the funeral right, you need to hire professional mourners, usually women, who would who would shriek and, and wail and express grief appropriately and loudly and go along in the funeral procession. Well, the Lord is saying, hire mourning women to come. Send for the skillful women to come. Let them make haste and raise a wailing over us, that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids flow with water. More tears. You may feel the need for Kleenex as, as we continue. For a sound of wailing is heard from Zion. How we are ruined. We are utterly shamed because we've left the land, because they've cast down our dwellings. And this is either as that's happened or looking at it prophetically in the future as if it has happened. Either way, the, 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 the reaction is the same. Hear, O women, the word of the Lord. Let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach to your daughters a lament and each to her neighbors a dirge. For death has come up into our windows, as it entered our palaces, cutting off the children from the streets and the young men from the squares. Speak, thus declares the Lord, the dead bodies of men shall fall like dung upon the open field, like sheaves after the reaper, and none shall gather them. And we've already spoken of, of another place, the, the horror of bodies left unburied, a great dishonor uh, in, in that land and at that time. And yet the bodies are described as merely lying on the ground to become fertilizer for the ground. A horrible uh, image, really. And yet that's, that's what's happening, and that's what will happen. So first, this mourning, this grief, this anguish, Jeremiah's, and as the Lord calls for the city to bring professional mourners in to lament what has happened to the city. But in the middle of that, uh, at least as it's uh, put together in the ESV, there's just a block of prose, a paragraph, that very matter-of-factly explains 
what's going on, explains the situation. Let's look at that. So here is the explanation, verses 12 through 16. Who is the man so wise that he can understand this? This is the question. To whom has the mouth of the Lord spoken that he may declare it? Why is the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness so that no one passes through? Just raising the question, why are these things the way they are? It's almost as if we sort of take a break in the midst of all the weeping and gnashing of teeth and just talk rationally about what's happened. Why are things the way they are? Who can understand this? And the Lord answers, verse 13, the Lord says, Because they have forsaken my law that I set before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the Baals as their fathers taught them. Now, remember uh, back earlier in chapter 7 with the family worship gone bad and the, the, the misplaced trust in the temple. Um, the emphasis there on the people's sacrificing, the people's ritual. And yet the Lord's concern was not with offerings, it was with obedience. And we talked about how if you go back to Exodus and the giving of the law, First, the law is given. First, the emphasis is on obedience and the people's commitment, all the things that the Lord has said, we will do. Then the Lord gave the whole sacrificial system to, to one to, to emphasize the people's sinfulness, but also as an expression of God's grace, that a substitute would die in the place of his people, which, of course, prepares the way symbolically for the Lord Jesus Christ to come as the, the lamb. Well, here in the explanation, we have that same theme again. Why? Because they've forsaken my law. They've not obeyed my voice. They've disobeyed me. They're being disciplined for it. They've gone their own way. They've worshipped the Baals as their fathers taught them. Uh, in the Canaanite pantheon, uh, El was theoretically at least the, the head god, head honcho. And El and Ashtoreth have a son, and the son is Baal. But in reality, as it plays out, Baal is really the critical figure. He is the he is the the, the main fertility god, and you'll see regional Baals, uh, you know, Baal hyphenated name in these various places. And the word Baal basically means Lord. Um, but they've gone worshiping these Canaanite deities, the Baals. That's why that's plural, as their fathers taught them. Remember Deuteronomy. Fathers were to teach their children about what God had done, about the law of God. Well, the fathers were teaching their children Baal worship, Canaanite religion. Verse 15, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations whom neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send the sword after them until I've consumed them. In effect, God is saying, I'm going to keep my covenant. Because early on, he said, you know, Deuteronomy, you disobey me, you will experience the curses of the covenant. And I will remove you out of this land, even as I removed the peoples before you when I brought you into this land. And that's exactly what God did. Just as Israel was an instrument of God's judgment on these Canaanite people and their wickedness, so Babylon was an instrument of God's judgment on Israel. They had become no better, in fact, in some ways worse particularly for their sins against what they had known, worse than the nations that they replaced. But right in the middle, just a very calm, rational explanation for what's going on here. 
And that's, of course, for the people of that time, but it's for everyone who would receive the book of Jeremiah. Why does God discipline? Why does God chasten? Why does God bring affliction on his people? Well, it's because of their rebellion, because of their sin against him. But there's a third section in this passage, that is the way out. The passage ends uh, on, an, on an up note in, in one way, in that if the people would just do this, if they understood this, Perhaps the Lord would relent. And we find this way out in verses 23 through 26. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. It gives you a mindset of where the people were. But let him who boasts, boast in this that he understand and understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. First way out is to turn from boasting in ourselves, boasting in what we've done, boasting in who we are, to boasting, that is to say glorying, in that we understand and that we know the Lord who practices steadfast love, difficult concept. It's a Hebrew, the Hebrew word chesed, God's covenant love, his loving kindness, however you want to translate it. There's no real good equivalent in English. Steadfast love is probably as good a rendering as any, uh, the, 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 the persistent love of God. His justice, his righteousness, these are the things that the Lord cares about. Now, what have we been reading? We've been reading about people who lie, cheat, and steal, who, who talk nicely to each other and then stab each other in the back. Uh, everyone uh, has a, a brother named Jacob, a deceiver. But what does the Lord value? Love, justice, righteousness, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. What is the opposite of what Judah, Jerusalem, had become? The opposite was a people who glory not in themselves, but in that they know the Lord. And a people who value and who practice those things that delight the Lord. Steadfast love, justice, righteousness, not the corrupt wickedness that they were pursuing to the point of exhaustion. So that's part of the way out. What is God looking for? Well, he's not being unreasonable. God is not impossible to please. This is what it is he wants. But there's also another thing here in the way out, and that is a heart for the Lord. Look at verse 25. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Who might that be? Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair, to shave their temples, which apparently was a Canaanite kind of thing. Actually, the Lord prohibited that in his law. For all these nations are uncircumcised. And, oh yes, in case you didn't catch it when I mentioned Judah in that list, all the house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. It goes back to Deuteronomy. Circumcise your hearts, therefore. You see, they, they may have practiced, even under Josiah's reforms, some of the outward trappings of that old-time religion they used to have under the covenant. 
but their hearts weren't in it. They weren't serving the Lord with their hearts, even if they were serving him in some form outwardly. Circumcised merely in the flesh, uncircumcised in heart. They may have had the sign of the, the, sign of the covenant outwardly, but they did not, did not have the heart of the covenant within them. Paul speaks of this very thing in, in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verse 28, he says this, and he's talking about the sinfulness of Gentiles, but also the sinfulness and culpability of Jews who have the law but don't live by it. Romans 2, 28, he says, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision, that Old Testament covenant sign, outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. What's the problem with the people? The problem with the people is their hearts are unregenerate, which is what a circumcised heart represented, a heart for God, to love God. And even though they may have had an outward form of religion, their heart was not in it, and they were no better than Egypt, Edom, the Ammonites, Moab, who, by the way, also practiced circumcision, and yet were not God's covenant people. Well, Israel also did not have a heart for God. Well, as we look at this, and the, the mourning, the explanation of that, of the situation, and then what God is looking for, we have to say, okay, well, what does this say to us today? Does this have anything to say to those of us today? And I think that it does, because the fact is there is also much to mourn in the contemporary church, the professing church, those who have a sign out front that says they are a church, some more faithful than others, but all claim the name church, the name Christ, and to speak in his name. And there's much to mourn uh, as we look across our land, um, bowing at the altar of the false god of relevance, or at least perceived relevance, to the point of, in extreme cases, ending up with what Michael Horton refers to, and as the title of his book, it's Christless Christianity, you know, where at best it's to-do and how-to and uh, you know, human nature had improved, life working in it more smoothly, but anything but Christ and him crucify the gospel Yes, the Bible does give us a lot of information that's practical and relevant about how to live life, how to raise our children, but that's not the main message of the Bible. The main message is our need of God's grace in Christ. The loss of our young people to the world. The statistics are rather sobering. How many people who were faithful and involved in the church in their teens are no longer so by the end of their 20s? Uh, sobering statistic. Uh, the general low level of godliness in the church relative to the world in terms of professing believers who live really no differently than their unbelieving friends. Churches that in the name of Christ allow and even celebrate various sin, including the sin of homosexuality. Churches that in the name of Christ uh, allow and even celebrate uh, sins such as pride. A lot to mourn in the contemporary church. But, unlike Jeremiah seems to, we don't mourn as those who are without hope. We pray for the church. We pray for God's renewing, for the work of the Holy Spirit in our church, in the church. And we repent too. 
I forgot who it was. He said, it was asked, what's wrong with the church? And his answer was, I am. It's very easy to look out there and say, well, there's a lot wrong with all these other churches and there's a lot wrong with all these other people. What's wrong with you? You know the sins of your heart. You know, as we sang this morning, prone to wander. Lord, I, leave, I know it, prone to leave the God I love. You know your heart. You know how well or how not well your heart corresponds to your outward obedience, to your being here in church, to your conversations with one another. We need to pray for the church that starts with praying for ourselves and repenting of our own sin. What's wrong with the church? I am. You are. Well, to be a part of the solution, not part of the problem, we need to remember and take to heart the two things that the Lord points out here at the end of this passage because he gives the answer. It's right here. First, make your boast in the Lord. Glory in him. Glory in his majesty. Glory in his grace. Glory in his wisdom. Glory in his holiness. In all that he is and all that he is for you in Christ Jesus. Make your boast in the Lord. Boast in his wisdom. Boast in his might. Boast in his riches. Wrong to boast? Yes, if it's about yourself. But not if you're glorying in the God who created us, the God who saves us. And then the second thing, make sure that your service to him is not merely external religion, but is from heartfelt devotion to the Lord. Boast in the Lord. Serve and love the Lord from the heart. Who knows? You might even make Jeremiah stop crying. Let's pray. Father, we pray that that would be true of us. We pray that these things would be true of our children, that they would characterize our church. Father, we acknowledge that we are sinners, that we are quite capable of being as sinful as people were that we read about, of being deceitful, of being hateful, of backstabbing, of oppressing in various ways. Father, forgive our sins. Lord, our hearts are deceitful, desperately wicked. Lord, reign them in by your grace that our hearts might serve you, that we would find you to be our glory, and that we would love you from the heart, so that even if no one else is around, and even in the deepest thoughts of our heart, our desire would be to serve you, to please you, to obey you. For Christ's sake, we pray in his name. Amen.